Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. My name is Sean Brady. In 2014, Virgin Galactic's quest for space took a tragic turn. In a period of just 13 seconds, a test flight went from success to disaster. And while you may be asking how the lessons learned from such an ambitious project as space travel are relevant to the rest of us, this failure gives us insight into how hiring and training the very best people is simply not enough to prevent human error. It was the morning of the 31st of October, 2014, and Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2 craft detached from its transport vehicle, White Knight 2. It then commenced a test flight in the Earth's atmosphere. There were no passengers on board. The pilot, Peter Siebold, was 43 years old, and the co-pilot, Michael Ellsbury, was 39 years old. And just after detachment from White Knight 2, Spaceship 2 fired its rocket. It increased speed and approached the sound barrier. And then it broke apart. As the craft ruptured, the pilot, along with his seat, was thrown clear. He somehow managed to release himself from the seat and his parachute opened. He then began the nine-mile fall to the ground below. And during this fall, he drifted in and out of consciousness. He suffered severe injuries, but survived. Tragically, the co-pilot died in the crash, and he was found still restrained in his seat among the wreckage of Spaceship Two. This is the story of human error, but much more importantly, it's the story of how dangerous it is to design a system based on the assumption that human error doesn't happen. So by the time of the failure, Spaceship Two, together with White Knight Two, were the latest vehicles in Virgin Galactic space program. Go and have a look at the article in the show notes for this podcast and, and have a look at a picture of these these craft because they're they're truly beautiful. Now, White Knight 2 is an aircraft that's shaped like a catamaran. It almost looks like two airplane fuselages attached by one large wing. Now, this craft climbs in a corkscrew manner to an altitude of about 50,000 feet, which is about 15,000 meters. Now, during this climb, Spaceship 2 hangs tucked beneath White Knight 2. And at this point, it's just going along for the ride. Now, Spaceship 2 is the vehicle that actually goes into space, and it's in here where the paying space tourists will ultimately travel. Now, it's at a height of 50,000 feet that things really get interesting. Spaceship 2 detaches from White Knight 2, and White Knight 2 then zips upwards due to the loss of weight, and it quickly gets out of the way. So in a typical flight, once Spaceship 2 has detached, it fires its rocket and accelerates, turning almost vertically upwards. Now, it accelerates past the transonic range, which is 0.9 to 1.1 Mach, and becomes supersonic. Before we go too far, it's probably worth having a quick chat about what we mean by Mach. So, Mach means the speed of sound, which is 1,236 kilometers an hour. So, Mach 1 means the vehicle is traveling at the speed of sound. 0.9 Mach means it's traveling at 90% of the speed of sound, and so on. So, Spaceship 2 accelerates past 0.9 to 1.1 Mach, and this speed presses the two pilots into their seats. Now, in a normal flight, the rocket shuts off and Spaceship 2's momentum carries it upwards following an arc. It crosses the peak of this arc, which is known as the epigee, and then it begins its downward trajectory. 
And as the vehicle traverses this arc, it pitches over for passengers to have a view of the earth below, and they unbuckle for four minutes of weightlessness. Then, before gravity reasserts itself, they strap in, and the vehicle begins to gain speed as it descends. Now comes the really clever part, which is how Spaceship 2 re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. So, unlike NASA's Space Shuttle or the Apollo Command Module, heat generation during re-entry isn't a big problem, because Spaceship 2 doesn't actually go into orbit. But it does have to slow down its descent, and it needs to ensure it remains facing the right way up throughout. So to slow down, it needs to generate drag. But generating drag is a double-edged sword. When it's needed at re-entry... It needs to be minimised during the boost phase when the craft is ascending. Now Spaceship 2 solves this conflict by using a feathered system. Now the easiest way to think about the feathered system is to think about it as a set of wings on the craft that can rotate and change position. So this feathered system essentially allows the craft to change its shape during the boost phase as compared to the re-entry phase. So how does it work? Well, During the boost phase, the feather remains undeployed, which means it sits tucked in beside the fuselage of the craft, um, which leaves a very, very sleek craft where drag is minimised. But during the re-entry, the pilot and co-pilot deploy the feather, which rotates it through an angle of 60 degrees. So imagine the wings sticking up behind the craft like the handlebars on a chopper motorcycle. And this doesn't look very sleek anymore, and it isn't meant to be. So this dramatically increases the drag on the vehicle, and the deployed feather also automatically keeps the vehicle's underside facing downward, thus they solve the orientation issue at the same time. So the key point here is that the feather should be undeployed for the boost phase, but it needs to be deployed for the re-entry phase. So after re-entry comes the landing, and now the incredible thing about Spaceship 2 is that apart from the, the rocket which has now done its job, it's unpowered. It's now behaving like a glider, which means you only get one chance to land it safely. So there's no power to abort and come back round for another pass at the landing. Which really brings us to a key place in the story. Controlling the vehicle in the gliding phase is incredibly difficult. Which is why only the very best aviators are accepted to fly this vehicle, many of whom are either ex-NASA or aviation test pilots. Now, hiring the best people appears to have strongly influenced the vehicle's development, which was undertaken by Scaled Composites LLC, which is a subsidiary of Northrop Grumman. Now, this is the same Grumman which built the iconic Apollo lunar module, the spidery vehicle that put Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. Now, one of the philosophies adopted in Spaceship 2's design was that automation was minimised, with control being left with the pilots. Now, this is quite a departure from NASA's shuttle programme, where shuttle landings were actually performed by a computer. And what I think is really extraordinary is that it's actually doubted that a human would be good enough to land a space shuttle without a computer. But the approach taken in the design of Spaceship 2 was the direct opposite, minimum automation. Scale Compensants took the view that minimising automation was minimising the number of systems that could go wrong, so pilot intuition, reflexes and control would be the first and last line of defence. So now we can return to the morning of the 31st of October 2014 when White Knight 2 took Spaceship 2 up to about 50,000 feet. Now, the test plan on the day called for Spaceship 2 to fire its rocket, then deploy its feather, and glide back to the spaceport. Now, in order to understand why the failure occurred, we need to have a chat about how feather deployment actually works. Now, there are, there are two stages. The first is unlocking, and the second is deployment. So in the unlocking stage, the co-pilot manually unlocks a mechanical lock that keeps the feather in place. Then both the pilot and co-pilot deploy the feather by pulling two levers that activate actuators, which are like hydraulic rams, and these rotate the feather through 60 degrees. 
But why, why, have, why have two stages? Why bother having a lock on the feather? Why not just use the actuators to hold the feather in the undeployed position? And then when it's time to deploy the feather, why not have the actuators deploy the feather? Well, things are a little more complicated than that. So here's the problem. At speeds less than 1.4 Mach, particularly during the transonic range of 0.9 to 1.1 Mach, the aerodynamic forces acting on the feather do so in a way that they want to cause the feather to deploy. In other words, they want to open it, and the actuators were never designed to prevent this opening. So this is why they need to have a mechanical lock. This lock was there to prevent the deployment during the transonic range by these aerodynamic forces. But once the craft is travelling at 1.4 Mach and above, the direction of these aerodynamic forces acting on the feather actually reverse. They now act to prevent deployment. In other words, these forces want to keep it closed. And because they're now acting to prevent deployment, the feather can be unlocked without the risk of accidental deployment. Then when it's necessary to deploy it, the actuators can be activated and deployment will occur. Now, at this point, your head is probably starting to explode. But the important point is this. At low speeds, the lock is needed to stop the feather deploying because of aerodynamic forces. At higher speeds, the lock isn't needed because these aerodynamic forces have reversed and no longer want to deploy the feather. Another way of thinking about it is that the mechanical lock is there to prevent the feather being deployed during the boost phase of the flight. Then by the time they're re-entering, the feather needs to have been unlocked and then deployed to generate enough drag to land safely. So, when's the best time to unlock the feather? Why not do it just prior to when you want to deploy it? But there's a big risk if you wait till then. What if there's a mechanical failure and the feather won't unlock? Because now you're hurtling towards the Earth's surface during re-entry and you can't slow yourself down. You're going to crash and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Not a good situation. So to manage this risk, you need to unlock the feather as early in the flight as it's safe to do so. And you need to do this to prove that it actually can be unlocked and there's no form of mechanical failure. Once it's unlocked, you can then proceed with the flight knowing that you'll have a deployed feather for your re-entry stage later. So how early can you unlock it? Well, you can unlock it as soon as the aerodynamic forces reverse. So once you're travelling faster than 1.4 Mach, you can unlock it. Now, what's the latest you can unlock it? Well, the approach taken here was that you needed to unlock the feather before the craft reached a speed of 1.8 Mach. And if you hadn't opened the feather by this speed, you had to abort the flight. And you aborted the flight by cutting the rocket, thus minimizing the height the vehicle would reach, which means you can mitigate the hazards of re-entering with an undeployed feather. So there was a rule that if you hadn't unlocked the feather by 1.8 Mach, you had to abort. So let's summarize, or at least attempt to summarize. You can't unlock the feather below 1.4 Mach because the aerodynamic forces will cause premature deployment of the feather during the boost phase of the flight. But if you haven't unlocked it by 1.8 Mach, you have to abort the flight because this is the maximum speed you can reach and still make a landing without the aid of a feather. So there's only a narrow window when the co-pilot can unlock the feather, which is between 1.4 Mach and 1.8 Mach. So, keeping all this in our heads, we'll go back to the morning of the 31st of October 2014. Spaceship 2 reached 0.8 Mach, and the forward-facing cockpit camera and flight data sheet showed that the co-pilot called out the airspeed as 0.8 Mach. He then moved the feather from the locked to the unlocked position. So unlocking occurred not at a speed above 1.4 Mach, but at about 0.82 Mach in the transonic range when the aerodynamic forces were acting to deploy the feather which is exactly what happened. These forces were enough to quickly overcome the actuators and the feather deployed. 
and once it was deployed, the increased drag on the vehicle during the phase of the flight resulted in it losing aerodynamic stability and breaking apart. It was essentially folded in half as the rocker continued to push it forward, but the drag from the feather held it back. Now, in the show notes, I've included a link to the National Transportation Safety Board website, and they have a video on the website which shows the 13 seconds from Spaceship 2's detachment until the feather deployed. Now, it's pretty chilling watching, but you'll clearly see the feather deploy and the craft become unstable. But why did the co-pilot do this? After all, the National Transportation Safety Board investigation into the disaster found that the co-pilot had spent many, many hours in the simulator, and he'd repeatedly unlocked the feather at the correct speed of 1.4 Mach. So why was it different during the flight? Well, we're unlikely to ever know precisely why, but the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, identified a number of issues that likely affected the co-pilot's performance on the 31st of October. Firstly, from a physical perspective, flying Spaceship 2 was very different to being in the simulator. So during the actual flight, the pilot and co-pilot had to deal with very significant G-forces and vibration that simply wasn't there in the simulations. Secondly, there was the workload, which was intense. So over a short period of time, the pilots were required to perform a large number of tasks from memory. And the NTSB concluded that such a high-pressure environment was likely to produce human error, even if tasks had previously been performed successfully in the simulator. And thirdly, they reckoned that the fear of having to abort the mission if the feather wasn't unlocked by 1.8 Mach may have resulted in pressure on the co-pilot to unlock earlier. But despite this pressure, was the co-pilot aware that early unlocking risked the catastrophic failure of the craft? Now, it transpired that skilled composites who designed it were very aware of the catastrophic consequences of early debridement during the boost phase. But the NTSB found that, and I'm going to quote, there was insufficient evidence to determine whether the pilots fully understood the potential consequences of unlocking the feather earlier. Which raises the question, given the known catastrophic outcome, why did skilled compasses not provide some form of automated system to prevent early unlocking? Well, very disturbingly, the NTSB found that skilled composites did not include such a system because it simply never envisaged that such qualified pilots would make such a simple mistake. Now think about that for a moment. Pulling a lever at the wrong stage of the flight would likely lead to catastrophic destruction of the craft. And the only defense you have to prevent this is that you depend on the pilots being infallible. The NTSB investigation would conclude that, and I'm going to quote again, the probable cause of this accident was skilled composites' failure to consider and protect against the possibility that a single human error could result in a catastrophic hazard to the Spaceship 2 vehicle. And sadly, the lesson from this failure is not new, and it's, it's summarised very succinctly by James Reason, who's an expert in, in human error, and he said, it is often the best people who make the worst mistakes. So ultimately, the the philosophy of minimal automation in the design of the vehicle left a critical vulnerability. There was no capability to prevent and manage a single human error. So this was, was foremost a system failure. It ignored human fallibility, which is a constant threat regardless of the expertise and experience of the individuals involved. Key issue here is how do you ensure the reliability of human judgment? A lack of automation permits the inevitable human errors to occur, over-automation encourages overconfidence in a system's infallibility and regulates human intuition to the sidelines. 
There's a wonderful quote from a man by the name of David Brosnan on the role played by humans in failure and failure prevention. Human error may be the most important cause of failure, but human judgment may be our best safeguard against it. And between these two extremes is a line we all must tread. Thank you.